On this episode of Theology for the People, I'm sharing with you a recording of a workshop which I co-led with my friend Aaron Salvato at the 2023 Calvary Global Network International Conference on the topic of doubt and deconstruction. In recent years, it has become increasingly popular for people who grew up in Christianity to go through a process of deconstruction in which they seek to examine and question the origins of their beliefs. Now, as we discuss in this workshop, deconstruction is not always a bad thing. In fact, I myself went through a process of deconstruction at one point, and I talk about that story in this workshop. But the deconstruction movement, powered by social media, largely targets younger people and encourages them to cast off their Christian beliefs. So in this workshop, Aaron and I start out by first defining deconstructionism, then examining its philosophical roots. Further, then, we look at the impact of this movement and some of the common threads in the claims they make. And then in the second half of the workshop, we discuss a biblical response to doubt and deconstruction and some helpful tips for addressing the questions that those who are deconstructing may have. One disclaimer for you is that the audio quality of this recording is not the best. This was recorded live, and then it had some filters put on it to reduce background noise, which kind of distorted it a little bit. But it's all definitely understandable, and I hope you will forgive the quality of the recording and that you will benefit from this content. Here's the episode. My name is Aaron Salvato. I spent about eight years as a youth pastor did youth ministry for a long time. I work on a podcast right now called The Good Lion Podcast that is specifically for young leaders, young Christians. This is Nick, yeah. who is much cooler than me. <laughs> I used to be young girth than I am now. And so I was a missionary for 10 years in Hungary. Last 10 years, I've been back where I grew up in the state of Colorado. I pastor a church called Whitefields Community Church. And this topic's very near to my heart for personal reasons. And for academic reasons as well. Yeah. So we are going to go and take you guys through some of the stuff that we've prepared to help understand this problem. We're going to spend some time on the problem, and then we're going to spend some time on the solution. We're going to kind of tag team it back and forth a lot, and hopefully what we say is a blessing and an encouragement. Let's start off by just asking the really important question, why does this matter. As a youth pastor, I had the amazing gift of walking with a group of students from sixth grade all the way till 12th grade. It was just, it was a massive gift to be able to do that. In that time, I've had probably about a hundred or so kids come through that group. And I've seen so many of them do well, but then I've seen others where it's like, man, they, I baptized them. I took them on missions trips. I taught them how to preach. They were leading worship. They were doing so well. And now they're at this point where just everything seems to be falling apart. They're doubting their faith. They don't know if they even believe in Jesus anymore, or they've been so wounded that they, they, they've lost their way. So it, it truly matters to me, Nick. I know that you've had your own personal experiences with this. Yeah. Yeah. Even as a pastor, I remember, you know, planting a church in my early 20s. And after a few years in my church plant, you know, here I am pastoring people. I found myself going through a process of doubt and deconstruction, where I had those exact questions that Aaron's talking about people he was ministering to having. I, I, I was having those problems myself, yeah. crisis of faith, et cetera. I'll talk more about that as we go on. Yeah. And, and so that's a big part of my, my history, and it's probably why I care about it. Yeah. 
Let's start by defining some terms. So we could define doubt this way. The hesitation that you feel when fearing that your beliefs may not be as certain as you once thought. And also the sense that the answers that you've been given don't fully satisfy your curiosity or your conscience. And then with deconstruction, we could say, just at a cursory level, this is about trying to determine the origins of your beliefs or why you believe what you believe. And then you go through the process of taking apart your beliefs and sort of laying them out on the table and examining them with a critical eye. And sometimes you end up reconstructing your beliefs. And then other times, very often what we see is people dispose of their beliefs. They take a look at the pieces and go, this doesn't work for me anymore. And then they leave it behind. Yeah. So, I mean, if we look into the roots of deconstruction as a term, as an ism, right? Deconstructionism. I think where we would immediately go is the 20th century, you know, Jacques Derrida in the 60s and 70s is really the kind of known as like the father of deconstructionism. The roots of it go back further. But again, really the idea, it's a rejection of the idea of objective truth without getting too philosophical. I mean, this is postmodernism because we went through the modernist period coming out of the Enlightenment where everything's black and white. Problem, though, with the, with the modern period is that you ended up with people having conflicting statements about what they believe to be black and white, right? And so you got one guy saying everything's like this, another guy saying everything's like this. Those conflict with each other. Now we're into the postmodernism in the 20th century where people are saying, well, how can it be that this guy's got his statements on what he says is right and wrong? This guy's got another one, they conflict. And so it led to this reaction to that, which we call postmodernism, and, and the idea of deconstruction too, saying that maybe some of these things aren't actually black and white objective truth. Maybe a lot of this is relative. Maybe a lot of it's influenced by your environment, culture, et cetera. Jacques Derrida was one of the key figures in that. But if you go on the next slide, there are some other important voices in that. Before that, let's talk about just how many of you guys grew up in the church? I was a pastor's kid. Okay, a lot of people here. So you know, like you have a, a certain point in that process where everything's black and white. Everything your pastor says is absolute truth. As you get older, the threads start to unravel when you start to see things going on in culture. Maybe you go to college and you start to see that things are actually not as simple as maybe you were led to believe growing up. And so we want to talk just briefly about how postmodern philosophy has influenced Christian deconstruction. One, again, like we said, is the rejection of objective truth. So it goes back to that statement, pilot mania, what even is truth? And then beyond that, the rejection of authorial intent, which goes back to what the serpent said, did God really say? I remember talking to a young lady who was going to a very progressive university, and she was actually a youth pastor in the Methodist church. And we were talking about what, what she was teaching her kids. And she was like, yeah, words don't have meaning. Like we create the meaning of what we want things to be. And I was like, you actually believe that when God wrote the Bible, she's like, well, no, God didn't write the Bible. That was just men. So that's kind of where we're at at this place. A big part of postmodern thinking, but we also say how it influences deconstruction. It really gets to a lot of uh, skepticism about authority and power. Mm. And it's that concept, right, that power always corrupts. Um, but you can go on, and there's a famous statement of uh, Paul Michel Foucault. He said, every truth claim is a power play. And so that gets a lot into what we're talking about here with postmodern viewpoints getting into deconstructionism. We're looking at people are beginning to critically examine the origins of their beliefs. 
but also with a skepticism about the authority that was involved in doing that. Now, that plays a lot into church, right? People growing up or even not growing up in church, but being a little bit skeptical about people in positions of power and, you know, what is really their motivation. Yeah. And Foucault, who said that every truth claim is a power play, he was a contemporary of Derrida. He theorized a lot about the relationship between power and knowledge and how knowledge is sometimes used as a form of social control, or at least ideas of truth put forth are used as a tool for social control, even over groups such as churches, for example, or subcultures. Yeah. But going on with that, Marx and Nietzsche specifically, they rejected the idea of objective morality. They said that moral codes are inherently oppressive. They're used by groups of people to oppress other groups of people or to control them. So you see a lot of these same ideas coming down then, processed by Foucault and by Derrida, and then working their way now into kind of the cultural milieu of what we are experiencing on a practical level. Right. If you've been anywhere on social media in kind of the Christian deconstruction space, maybe you're a youth pastor and you're seeing kids in your youth group or maybe some of your former students posting about this, a lot of it has to do with that distrust of the church, that idea of the church is corrupt. They're pulling up new stories of pastors that have been abusive and then saying, hey, the entire church is like this, or hey, the entire Christian system was actually built on white colonialism, well, which is... Or, or that it's a system, <laughs> every part of it may not yeah. be corrupt, but it's a system which lends itself to corruption, right. et cetera. Yeah. So another thing that we noticed was the rejection of meta narratives as a part of this, which to me, when I saw that, I was like, the whole Bible is one big meta narrative. It's this overarching story about Jesus and how he brings things together and how he's the whole point of human history. But postmodernists don't like meta narratives because it's restrictive. And but to go back to the idea of power and suspicion of authority, right, which is inherent to this, that idea that every truth claim is a power play. That's a big part of why they would reject meta narratives because they would say anybody who puts forth a meta narrative is doing so in order to uh, control or manipulate another group of people. Now, I want to say this before we go too much further, that this, this skepticism about authority and the use of authority to control or manipulate is not always bad. Sometimes yeah. we should do that exact thing. And I'll give you an example of when it was done well, a little something we call the Reformation, <laughs> right? Because what was the Reformation if not people going back, you know, the, the call of the Renaissance, ad fontes, meant to the sources, go back to the sources. And what these people were saying is that the Catholic Church, the medieval Catholic Church, had used their power and authority to present truth claims which were actually just used to control and manipulate people. Mm. And so the reformers, Martin Luther and the other reformers, are coming back and saying, well, actually, let's re-examine this. We need to deconstruct this whole edifice that's been built and go back to the roots and see which parts are healthy and which parts are not. Mm. Throw out the parts that are not healthy, keep the parts that are right and good by going back to the sources. Mm. So I want to make it clear that we're not against all forms of deconstructionism. Yeah. In some cases, like the Reformation, you can have deconstruction, which is needed and healthy. Yeah, we were doing a podcast about this recently, and we were talking about how here in Calvary, we come from a you know, complementarian background, right? But I've talked to people who come from a complementarian background, but it's so 
far in this crazy direction with it that they actually believe that a husband should spank his wife if she disobeys him in any way. Yeah, and that's real. Like I've met people who are a part of that. So that's where I look at that and go, okay, that's not biblical. We need you to deconstruct that false belief and replace it with actually what the Bible says. So yeah, like you said, it's not all bad. Yeah, someone, someone who grew up in a Mormon background, mm. I would want to help them deconstruct yeah. a lot of their upbringing and things like that, right? So take apart the beliefs, examine right. them, see what actually works. So there is a different level of deconstruction. There's often a difference between someone struggling with deconstruction and then someone participating in that hashtag deconstruction movement that we see on social media. What I want to do is just spend a little bit of brief time making you guys aware of what's going on in that movement, kind of at a broad level. And then as I'm going through it, you'll probably recognize things that you'll see in some of your own people that are experiencing this. So these things are not true of every person deconstructing, but it's good to be aware of the movement at large. So I'll go through two. The Christian deconstruction movement is based on the idea that people who are raised in Christian faith or who have been Christian for a long time, they've got to deconstruct their beliefs and examine them critically. Often the goal of leaders in the movement is to sow seeds of doubt yeah. and see how they might grow. Yeah. Another thing is they also tend to question if the Bible is a divine source of truth. So they tend to see it more as a, just a human book, one of many religious texts. And often they think religion is used by humans to control and exercise power over others. Many in this movement, again, we're talking about the movement, and that is uh, they're often critical of the church, particularly of the motivations of people in power. Again, this goes back to some of the ideas uh, that we see expressed by Foucault and Derrida that any truth claim is a power play. So many may reject the idea of organized religion altogether, hmm. as opposed to the opposite of disorganized religion, which is, you know, anyway. <laughs> so but, fun. <laughs> uh, you, you know, somebody might say, this is a hypothetical quote, but just say, I used to go to church every Sunday. Now I'm not sure if I believe in organized religion anymore. It all seems hypocritical, corrupt, and judgmental. So again, getting back to uh, questioning of the motives and being suspicious of uh, leaders and things of that like. So, you know, one further thought in this is that we currently live in a time where more people are more educated than at any other time in history. That's true, not just here in the West and in the United States, that's true around the world. Yeah. So we live in the most educated time in all of history. And this can lend itself to that. You know, we come from a movement here in Calvary Chapel, which has kind of prided itself on not putting up barriers to people getting into ministry, yeah. requiring degrees, et cetera. But I would just say like one of the things that can happen with that is that people might go to college and then the professors who are very critical of the ideas that they were taught in their churches start saying things. This person in college tends to give a lot of, lot of credit to the person who's teaching them, their qualified professor, and then of course questioning and doubting their pastor or minister who may not have the same qualifications. And so the education can play a lot in this. And I would say there's an opportunity for us here to actually take advantage of that as well. You know, education is available to all of us on different levels. And I would say it's an opportunity for us to move into that space, just recognizing that, especially as with each subsequent generation, people are more and more educated mm. and we need to be aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm going through an interesting thing right now where I've got a kid that used to be in my youth group and they were in my middle school group. And like the last time we hung out, because they left the group after middle school, they were this excited, hopped up on sugar, you know, just middle school kid. 
And now they're working on their PhD and they're going through some of this deconstruction stuff. So when I talk to them, I'm like, you know, here I am with my one semester of Bible college and one semester of seminary. And I'm like, we're, we're speaking different languages. So I have to study and learn how to speak that language. I think that the word of God is sufficient. I think it's powerful enough, but I also think that we're called to be cultural missionaries. So if you're in a context where you're called to deal with young people, exactly what you're saying, being someone that's willing to learn and be open to grow in that way, I think you'll make more, more headway. Yeah, even just where I live on the, on the front range in Colorado, you know, it gives credibility and opens doors yeah. to be able to speak to people on that level. Totally. Um, moving on, let's continue with this. So this movement is not anti-spirituality. Rather, it's against religions that claim to hold absolute truth. So what we found is they often encourage people, hey, Christianity hurt you. Christianity is confusing. Christianity wounded you. You should explore spiritual practices as a way to find meaning and enlightenment outside of the traditional Christian framework. One thing I've observed just in my context has been the deconstruction movement can often be a pipeline to progressive Christianity. Not always, but very often they're linked. Yeah, I would just add, you know, for those of you who can remember it, 15, 20 years ago, we were, we were dealing with these same things. You remember Brian McLaren wrote a book called The New Kind of Christian. And in that book, he's talking about deconstructionism and things like that, right? So these are not new things to our day and age. They just become with, especially with social media and things like that, there's this kind of swarm mentality, but, but it, people are getting caught up in it for sure. Absolutely. So just to conclude this section, overall, Christian deconstruction movement is about questioning and challenging the origins and foundations of traditional Christian belief and practices, tearing down anything you find problematic. The result is either to reconstruct an alternative faith or to walk away from Christianity entirely. And just briefly, I'd want to talk about, you know, how did we get here? Um, this is just my own observation. So I'm a church kid. I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up like in the Calvary bubble. And I talked to my friends who were in youth group with me. They went to private Christian school with me. And a lot of them will say, you know, man, we grew up with kind of this very veggie tales version of faith. He just, I told you it would work. <laughs> I told them, I told him, no, no, He's nobody's like, going to relate that to out. that, man. No, Nick, Nick's just the weird guy who didn't watch veggie tales growing up. But anyway. But you, you guys, obviously, you get what I'm trying to say. This very whitewashed, moralized, you know, it's very neat. It's very tidy. It's not complex. At the end of it, it's just, hey, God made you special and he loves you very much. And that's all there is to it. I mean, there's a reason why VeggieTales never tried to do uh, the crucifixion. <laughs> One, they don't have arms. I don't know how it would work. But, <laughs> but yeah, so you, you get these kids that grow up in these, these environments that are just so simplistic. Uh, with loving leaders, right, who are trying their best to lead them and, and help them grow. But then often they get older and they experience the complexity of Christianity. I remember like when some of my mentors started going to seminary and hanging out with Gary Brashears over there, I was hearing from them like, hey, there's actually like so many more ways to interpret things other than what we grew up with. And I'm, I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is complex. And then hypocrisy in the church, watching leaders. I've watched so many people I look up to fall into destructive patterns, Christians, you know, behaving in unchristlike ways. You know, you turn on the news and you see Christians on the left and the right, just carrying the name of Jesus in ways that do not represent him well. And the young generation sees this and they go, is this what Christianity is supposed to be about? It can lead to dissonance, especially if they don't have anyone that they can ask the deep questions to. 
We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Hey, what's up? My name's Mike Neglia, and I know something about you. I know that you are a podcast listener of discerning tastes because you're listening to Theology for the People. So congratulations, you're already a winner. If you're looking to add one more podcast to your subscription feed, might I humbly suggest the Expositors Collective podcast. Uh, We're interested in talking to authors, seminary professors, commentary writers, and preachers about the personal study and public proclamation of God's Word. The intended audience is Bible study leaders, women's ministry directors, and preachers. If that's one of you, or if you like to just listen in on these types of conversations, we'll head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you're using right now, and check out the Expositors Collective. And you know what? Nick Katie is on there every once in a while as well, so I know you're going to like that. Well, let's look at some news. Let's look at some news. This is a great segment. (laughs) So what we've done is we've scoured the internet and we've actually dived into the deep, dark rabbit hole of deconstruction memes. And so let's look at a few and we can kind of break them apart. So here's one. Reasons people deconstruct. Conflicts between what you were taught and reality. So here's a, a meme where someone's saying, hey, we grew up with no violent movies, no horror movies, no ghost stories, no Harry Potter. Okay, funny story. My parents actually, my sister wanted to read Harry Potter. I was the oldest child. So they said, hey, we think this might be demonic. Can you read it first? Because you're the first kid. So, you know, anyway, (laughs) they experimented on me. I did not become a wizard. So, but yeah, nothing sexually explicit, you know, none of that stuff. And then you actually read the Bible and it's like God's killing people. Lazarus is a zombie. There's the conjuring of the ghost of Samuel fortune telling, incest, all like just so much weird stuff all over the Old Testament. And so young people experience this and they're like, this is so strange. Like one year for Christmas, we got one of my kids a Bible, like a real adult Bible. And they're so excited. I went to the room and then came back like 30 minutes later and said, hey, mom, dad, what does it mean that Noah had relations with his daughters? And we were like, oops. Yeah, strange. My point is just that, (laughs) yeah, I mean, that's that's real. So Yeah, I think the key to this is that we don't need to hide those things from people and have kind of like a, a Veggie Tales version of faith. Like we should be real about that. Yeah, it's a willingness to just go to those dark places early on and help them understand things are not as simple, uh, but then helping them dive into that complexity. Here's another meme. Um, so p- deep pain and dissatisfaction with the church. This is somebody on social media just expressing, hey, most of the things which you were promised inside evangelicalism, you'll find when you leave. People are saying, yeah, peace, freedom, joy, contentment. You know, the the people saying, you know, when I finally left the church, that's when things opened up for me. And this is like tragic to me to see this happen because it's not how it's supposed to be. But the reality is there are people, maybe even within our churches, our youth groups right now, who for whatever reason, like they're they're not connected, they're not growing. And so they feel empty. And then they step out and the minute they get the taste of the world, the enemy convinces them, hey, now you feel alive. That breaks my heart. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that except to say that that shows the need for preaching a gospel, yeah. right? That is clear, like, what is the gospel that we're teaching them? 
to hope in. Yeah. And also like what should be their expectations of humanity and the church? I truly believe that the Bible does have the answers for both of those things. Yeah. And it comes down to teaching well and not, you know, trying to give them kind of a cheapened, easier version of faith. But yeah. like you said, the complexity is actually important even for kids at young ages. Absolutely. Now here's a really difficult one. Reasons people deconstruct abuse and then very often combined with that, not always, but bad theology. Here's two Twitter posts. One, the devil doesn't look like red lights and songs about sex. It looks like a trusted pastor telling you he's sorry, but he's not going to report your attackers to the police. Your attackers just too important to the ministry. And are you sure he wasn't, it wasn't really your fault that you got attacked? Which, and this is real stuff. I'm on Christian Twitter, which is just a hellhole. Stay off of Christian Twitter. You will never be more depressed than spending your time on Christian Twitter. But anyway, here's another one. Bad theology. I had a patient. This is a psychologist that you know, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he says, I had a patient who was brutally assaulted and his pastor told him, you have to forgive him or you'll go to hell. This is not the first time I've heard this. It's a theology that keeps the power with those in power. That pastor, by protecting the abuser, was protecting himself. This is a, I mean, I, I've talked to so many friends that grew up with me and they point to all of these abuses, all of these scandals as a reason where, where it's like, why would I stay in something so corrupt and broken? And it's easy for us to be like, well, yeah, but for every bad apple, there's all these good ones. But for us who carry the name of Christ, we understand like, this is not what the church is supposed to be. It's the product of sin infiltrating our ranks. Yeah, and without going too far ahead of where we're, we're currently at in this talk, is just to say that, you know, pointing them to the fact that Jesus was not okay with hypocrisy. He wasn't okay with bad behavior either. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. So let's go to one more and then we'll go to our next section here. So here's another one. This is from a really popular account. She says, Christians will say the Bible is literal and inerrant, but then Christians will also say, ah, Jesus helping the poor and the marginalized was just a metaphor. So it's seeing Christians have hypocrisy and cognitive dissonance. This is a big deal where a lot of times, and sometimes it's not even coming from pastors. It's just coming from like their parents or like their uncle or somebody. But I mean, I'll just share my own experience. I was talking to somebody in my church who was like a Bible study leader. And I was telling him about how Jesus calls us to love our enemies and practice the ethic of enemy love. And all of a sudden he jumps into, yeah, well, I think America is God's chosen nation. And if we need oil, we should be able to bomb any country in the Middle East that we need to in order to get that oil. And I was like, I can see that the news is discipling him. And it scared me because he's leading Bible studies. So, and I, I've talked to so many young Christians that see, here's what my pastor is telling me, but then here's what my Christian parents, my Christian uncle, my Christian school teacher he, they're saying these things that just don't line up with the way of Jesus. And it causes this, this dissonance that makes them want to leave. Yeah. So we're just trying to paint for you some of the background, some of the issues, some of the things that are adding to this. But now let's, let's move into talking about how we, can, yeah. how we can help. What are some tools that we have? Yeah. And let's get into the solution. So how to respond. I'll, I'll open up here. Um, here's something that's on my heart with this because it's my temptation I think we need to be watchful of the tendency to be the older brother in the prodigal story. Um, I never went through like some big rebellious phase. I pretty much stayed on the straight and narrow. I was volunteering in the youth group at 16 years old. I became a pastor at 21. And 
I had my own doubts, but they were very internal and I didn't like openly really do anything. It was all just very private doubt deconstruction stuff that I just worked through gradually. And I've had the temptation when I've watched friends who are like on Facebook, like publicly just like venting their doubts and deconstructions where I can get judgmental and go like, what are they doing? And it's just the classic older brother where it's like, look at him running away. I stayed. I was faithful. Like, why, why are they getting all the attention? I've heard that before, you know? And I think it even came up in the panel, the question of like, why are the doubters and deconstructors getting all the attention? And I think the reality is we need to help them see, or we need to see that this prideful spirit actually pushes doubters away. All of us have different struggles. Your, doubter, your, your struggle may not be doubt or deconstruction, but we all have struggles. We need to be open to help people. I think we need to have compassion this is like my big thing. Like I look at my kids that used to be in my youth group who I love, like my little brothers and sisters. And I just see somebody who is not like just wanting to be rebellious. I'm seeing somebody that is trying to hold on to the thread of their faith, but the more they pull, the more it unravels. Um, some of you guys might be familiar with Rhett and Link. Um, these are, you know, two guys that were formerly missionaries. They were with Campus Crusade for Christ. They became YouTubers. They moved to LA and Hollywood and entered the entertainment business. And in the process of that, they deconstructed and completely lost their faith. And they were very public about it. They led a lot of people away from the Lord, which is heartbreaking. But when you listen to their story, it's hard. Like they have two long podcast episodes about the process they went through deconstructing. And it made me like cry listening to it. Rhett says this, uh, he, he said, I want to emphasize how big a deal it was to me. Me and Jesus, it was a relationship. I've noticed that when I tell my story, often people kind of conclude that I was never a true Christian. As far as I'm concerned, Jesus was as real to me as he possibly could be without physically manifesting himself to me in my presence. It was a relationship. We were in conversation. I didn't want to give it up. Sorry, this is a personal, personal thing for me, seeing so many people that have gone through this. So. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's just to make the point that, look, we realize that a lot of people who go through this, they're not being rebels necessarily. Some of them, it's a, there's a real pain involved yeah. and, and a sense of loss yeah. in having these questions, not getting satisfying answers yeah. and having to say, well, I guess maybe I'm not a Christian. Yeah. And, and I, I have to be realistic. I, I went from a process when I started in ministry where I felt like I had to save every single person in my group. And God had to show me, like, it's not your responsibility to save anyone. That's my work. You're the microphone. You're the voice. The Bible says the way is narrow and few find it. So I have to realize like some people aren't going to make it and I can't control that. But I do love, you know, the heart of the father is for the prodigals to return home. You know, he's waiting on the porch with the light on and he's waiting to run to them when they return. So a part of why we do what we do. Sorry, I didn't know I was going to turn into such a mess, dude. But a part of why we do what we do is because we're looking for those prodigals that will return home. And if God can use us to help them make that journey back, that's what it's all about. Yeah. So I want to talk about, you know, a famous doubter. His name is Doubting Thomas, but, or as he might like to be called, just Thomas. It's okay, guys. <laughs> like I had a bad week, you know, like 2000 years ago. You can just call me Tom. That'd be fine. You know, it's like that kid who had a bad Bad day in middle school and right. his name was Stinky for the rest of his life. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's like when you think of the disciples, you've got Judas and then Thomas is like right <laughs> underneath, right? Like in the hierarchy, yeah. right? Almost so, Judas, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing we see with Doubting Thomas, though, this is what I think is important about his story there in John chapter 20. 
he didn't remain a doubter. Do you realize that that's the story? It's a a story of a man who did have doubts. Yeah. And he moved from doubt to faith. And there was a process involved. And we should take note of what that process was, right? Yeah. And, And so we see that moving from doubt to belief, number one, that's what Jesus wanted him to do. You remember a famous thing that Jesus said to him? Do not doubt, but yeah. believe, yeah. right? So Jesus didn't want him to stay in that place of doubt and, and unbelief. Rather, he wanted him to move to, from doubt to belief, and that involved seeing evidence, hearing testimony, but also involved him making a step. And, and that last step is important too. Yeah, I, I think it's so important with that phrase, you know, like, Thomas, stop your doubting and believe. It's so important that we don't divorce Jesus's words from his actions, because we can look at just the words, right? And go, well, there it is. There's the script. Someone comes and they're doubting and goes, hey, stop your doubting and believe. That's all it takes. But look at the actions of Jesus. He doesn't like come in and say, Thomas, stop doubting. He, he comes, like he walks through the wall. He says, Thomas, look at my, the holes in my hands. Look at the holes in my side. Thomas had this deep need where he had just gone through a traumatic experience watching his mentor and his rabbi crucified, he had given up all hope. Like he, that, had, that was the crux of his deconstruction was watching this traumatic experience. And he needed Jesus to show up to him and reveal himself to him in a way that he couldn't deny. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's my consistent prayer for my former students is, Lord, give them a Thomas moment, show up in their life in a way that they just can't deny. Yeah, I think that's important. Jesus didn't just tell him to knock it off. But he, he did things. But I want to add this as well. The fact that Jesus wanted Thomas to move from doubt to belief, mm-hmm. what that tells us about ourselves is that doubt may be a station that all of us pass through mm-hmm. at times in our lives, maybe multiple times in our lives. Mm-hmm. But it's not meant to be a destination where we remain. And there's a quote from, from this book, The Life of Pi, which you might know is turned into a movie. But here's the, here's the quote. It said, doubt is useful for a while. But eventually you must move on because to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. I love that. One of my favorite stories of doubt is the story of Peter. And I love seeing how God responds to Peter. You guys all know that classic story where Jesus is walking on water and the disciples are like, what is going on? And Peter's the one who has the crazy idea of, hey, I love Jesus so much that if I step out of this boat, I bet I could walk to him. Like, and he does, like there, there's, there's nothing in the scripture that says there was like a planning meeting about this or a conversation or Peter saying, hey, Jesus, do you think I could walk on water? And Jesus teaches him the Jedi trick of, you know, doing it, levitating. He just does it. He has that much faith. And so he has this great moment of faith, probably the greatest moment of faith in his life. And then what happens afterwards? He has the greatest moment of doubt. He sees the wind and the waves and he sinks. And I, what I love about that story is Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Again, don't divorce his words from his actions. He's saying, yeah, why did you doubt? What is he doing? He's pulling him up. He's lowering himself down to his level. He's reaching out and he's pulling him up. In both moments of Peter's greatest faith and his greatest doubt, it is the love of Christ that sustains him. And I truly believe that Jesus has just as much love for our students and our people when they're at the top of their game, leading worship, preaching, going to seminary, doing all this crazy stuff. And then when they're at their lowest point, doubting, deconstructing, maybe even publicly venting against the church, he's with them and he's faithful and he has not left their side and he wants to pull them up.
You know, the Bible would make it clear that there's a difference between what we call doubt and unbelief. So they're two different things, and I'll, I'll explain why. Doubt is the struggle to believe, whereas unbelief is a refusal to believe. Uh, doubt is a tension. Unbelief is a decision. I think a good example of this can be seen in Genesis chapter 18. So these uh, messengers come from the Lord to speak to Abraham and Sarah at their tents, and both of them are struggling with doubting and believing, right? But there's a difference in their doubt. Whereas you see Abraham has this like sincere doubt where he's saying, God, it's been 10 years since you made that promise. We're not getting any younger. Like what is, what is going on? Yeah. And yet Sarah's in her tent. And when she hears the word that you're going to have a son, she laughs, but her laugh is a laugh of mm. mocking and unbelief. Mm. And, and that kind of illustrates the difference, right? Doubt is that it says, I would believe, I just have some, I have some sincere questions, yeah. hmm. whereas unbelief is a kind of a scoffing, writing it off, saying, whatever. It's good. You know, there are a few ways I think that people in our culture commonly tend to think about or respond to doubt. This is both in the church and outside of the church. One common way is by demonizing it. So many people demonize doubt to say, hey, it's not good to ask so many questions. It's not good to question sources, authority, all of those things we talked about earlier. And he said, look, it's just a choice. You just choose to believe. That's what I do, right? So when those questions come up, just stuff them right back down where they came from. Yeah. The other, other you know, extreme of this is idolizing doubt. And that's what we see with some of the deconstruction movement, where it's becoming cool, faddish, to say that you're undecided, that you're on the fence. People who idolize doubt, they view it not as a station that you pass through, but really as a destination that you arrive at and where you remain forever. Yeah. I think one example of this too, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to be uncharitable, but I think it's a great case study is, you know, Michael Gungor from Michael Gungor Music and then the liturgist. I used to love his worship music. I thought it was so good. He went through a heavy process of doubt and deconstruction. He started a podcast that reflected on that. And for a while, he sort of moved into this space of like, progressive Christianity, like moving away from more traditional into more open-minded, right, quote-unquote, versions of Christianity. But at this point, he's kind of formed this community that's essentially around celebration of doubt and deconstruction and embrace and openness towards any belief or spirituality, as long as it's not theologically conservative Christianity. And that's a space that people are in right now. Like just they, they don't want to be contained by any of the constraints of the theology they wanted they want they want the kingdom without the king you know if we look at the bible though we'd have to conclude that neither of these two options if we listen to jesus and look at the scriptures neither of these two approaches is acceptable meaning idolizing or demonizing we're we're not afraid of doubts because here's why the truth is never afraid of examination in fact we don't tell people not to examine and not to ask questions we hope that people will ask more questions and do more yeah. seeking and knocking and examining because we truly believe, as our scriptures tell us, that if they do, they'll come to the truth. And we, we actually would say this. I think we can recognize sincere doubt as an opportunity to grow in authentic and vibrant faith because our doubts are going to push us more into seeking and looking. And yeah, absolutely. You know, another reason we don't demonize doubt is because the Bible doesn't demonize people who have sincere and honest doubts. Jude uh, one twenty two tells us, have mercy on those who doubt. I think that's so important. There's so many people that are looking for kindness 
I, I've got a friend who he's fully deconstructed. Like he, he used to be a Christian missionary. Now he's full atheist, agnostic, wants to burn the entire system down. But he'll tell me, you're the only Christian that I'll actually talk to because you don't treat me like a traitor. You know, you don't treat me like this, this leprous mutant who left the tribe. And I, I keep that door cracked open because I, I believe that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Mm-hmm. You know, another example from the Bible of having mercy on those who doubt or people doubting is in Matthew 28. I think this is incredible because maybe you're familiar with the Great Commission passage where Jesus tells his disciples right before he ascends into heaven, right? All power of heaven in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He sends them out to go and make disciples. But you know what the verse right before that says? It says, and some of them doubted. Right. And if you go back and see, why did they doubt? It wasn't just Thomas. It wasn't just Thomas. <laughs> it was many of them. We don't know their names, so we can't, can't give them nicknames. Right. But what happened is after Jesus' resurrection, where Jesus met with his disciples on a mountain in Galilee, and it says that they worshiped him, which is very significant, by the way. But then it says, and some of them doubted. So just think about how incredible this is. They're looking at the resurrected Jesus standing in front of them, and they're worshiping, and yet some of them are having doubts, like, is this real? Does this add up? How can this be possible? But you know what else that tells us? It tells us that it is possible to struggle with doubts yeah. and still worship Jesus at the same time. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, listen, if you do nothing but suppress your doubts, you know what will happen? You will not solve anything. If you try to tell those you minister to, if you try to tell your children, just ignore your doubts, suppress them, you're not helping them. In fact, you're probably just creating a problem that's going to be bigger later on when those things resurface. Because if the answers are never given, you've never taken them by the hand and helped them find the answers to their sincere questions, you you haven't resolved anything. In fact, I think you're creating a bigger problem when it resurfaces, which it eventually will. Absolutely. I think the alternative is we want to teach them to deconstruct their own doubts. I heard a great analogy from Tim Mackey. He was talking about how When you're driving a car and it breaks down, that was not the way the car was designed. The manufacturer didn't say, we're going to build this car to eventually break down. What happens is it's years of use and wear and tear. And other times it's potholes in the road. It's it's experiences. It's It's a wreck. It's a fender bender. There's something that happened that caused a problem in the car that eventually causes the issue. And so what do you do? You take it apart and you inspect it and you see how can we actually fix this together to retain the car. And that brings us to the question of, can deconstruction actually ever be healthy? Uh, For so many people, deconstruction begins with sort of noticing the termites gnawing at your house of faith. Doubts, unanswered questions, bad theology, failure of leaders, abuse, hypocrisy. Deconstruction can be good when the intent is to eliminate these termites, to find and exterminate the toxic cultural baggage, right? So it's finding those things that is not what is intended for Christianity. This should be done in community with trusted mentors who care about your spiritual well-being. Instead, far too many deconstruct in isolation and shame. They are afraid of what their pastors and friends will think about their doubts and frustrations, so they turn to social media and non-Christian and even anti-Christian influences. This results, instead of exterminating the termites, they burn their entire house of faith down that's, that. what I, that's what I'm tempted to do whenever I see a mouse in my house. <laughs> Whatever, just burn it all down. <laughs> yeah. All right, listen, I, before my injury, I was doing some construction in my house. 
which I'm not very good at, by the way, but... That's not a picture of your house, by the way. And it's not, not too far off, to be honest. So, okay. <laughs> Here's what happened. My son was using the shower in our master bathroom, and he comes out of the shower and says, hey, Dad, some of the tiles fell off the wall while I was in the shower. I'm like, oh, no, I know what that means. It means that there's rottenness in the wall, right? Something's not good. So I go in there, I start pulling it apart, and sure enough, uh, part of the wall... It had been uh, put together wrong, and part of it had totally rotted out. And so I ended up deconstructing my bathroom and taking it all the way down to the studs. And there, on the studs, some, there was a bit of mold and things I needed to deal with. You know, what was interesting, though, not the whole bathroom was, was rotten, just one part of the wall. So a lot of what I deconstructed in the bathroom actually wasn't bad. It was, it was great. And, and so, you know, it reminded me of my own kind of history of deconstruction, if you will. And that was, I was, a, I was pastoring a church in Hungary that we had planted. I was a couple of years in. My first child had just been born. And I remember I was teaching through the gospel of Matthew. And on one Sunday, as we were teaching and as teaching and everything was going so well in the church. And I remember saying something and thinking as I said it on a Sunday morning, I don't even know if I think that's really true. Right. And the only yeah. reason I said it was because that was what I had read in some commentary. And it's what I had heard other people say. So I was saying it, not because I actually believed it, but because I thought that's what you're supposed to say when you get to this particular passage. Mm. And then I just got down this rabbit hole of wondering, do I, do I actually believe any of this stuff is true? To the point where I actually considered resigning. Can I, can I be a pastor? I'm not even sure if I believe in God. Like I, and I, thankfully at that time, we were missionaries, and so it came right at the time when we had scheduled a six-week furlough in the U.S., and so we went and stayed in somebody's uh, guest house, and my wife went out and did stuff with her friends, and I remember just sitting in this one-room guest house for a few weeks and just trying to sort this out. What am I going to do? Am I going to resign? Am I, gonna, am I still a Christian? And praying during those times, because, I mean, I still believed in God, I thought, you know, and just trying to work through some things. In the end, I'll just cut the long story short and just say, I ended up concluding that I did believe in God and, and yet saying, okay, I'm really willing to examine all these things, take it down to the studs. But from there, where do I go? Yeah. And I began rebuilding my faith is what led me into going uh, in, you know, looking into higher education and studying Christianity at that le level. But I would say that I came out of it you know, some parts of the wall got, it got reconstructed. I would say better, maybe leaner from yeah. things I cast aside that I realized were actually just culturally influenced yeah. and, and things that were not essential to Christianity. But I had to reconstruct it because think about this. If I go through my house, oh, I might start wondering, well, okay, the bathroom wall was rotten. Maybe all these walls are rotten. I just start tearing stuff down. Yeah. And before you know it, I've got a house that I can't even live in because it doesn't have any walls anymore. Right. So if you deconstruct, which again, I say is sometimes a very healthy thing to do, but it has to be with the purpose of reconstructing at the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. I love that quote that you found from Dominic Doan. Rather than being a sign of spiritual collapse, doubts can be the sign of a faith that is screaming out for substance and truth. And I would just want to ask you, in your process, when you went through that, do you feel like, like, what was it mainly that helped you get back to that place of belief? Was it the intellectual aspect or was it an experience of God's presence? 
I mean, this is me, but it was an intellectual part. Yeah, no, I wasn't fishing for like a specific answer. I was, I was curious. Yeah, I think God takes different paths to reach different types of people and different types of minds. And I, yeah, and so I think some of us might be more inclined to go with the heart, but not the mind. But we're we're forgetting that there's people in our audience, like people that we're called to minister to, where they need us to speak to their mind. You know. Let's go on to just a few more methods before we close this section and go to Q and A. So. I think one that's really important is just be willing and available to help people wrestle with their doubts and deconstruction. You don't have to be a seminary professor. You don't have to be a brainiac. You like the Lord can use you. And sometimes we're deficient in certain things that we want to know, but he can still speak through that if we have a willing heart to meet people. And then sometimes you have a specific audience and God says, hey, there's here's what they're going through you don't understand it, you need to go research that so that you can speak their language. So many people have been pushed away, mocked, belittled, or dismissed by parents, fellow Christians, even pastors. Even in phases of outright rebellion, people are longing to be understood and known. And, and being just being there and saying, I can give you a non-judgmental space to actually wrestle through this. And I'm not gonna tell you, if you don't leave this conversation believing everything that I believe exactly the way I believe it, you can't still be a part of this church. We can't still be friends. If you can be the person that says, hey, I'm here for you. And, and, and regardless of what you think at the end of this conversation, I'm still going to love you and be here for you. That often can be used by the Lord so much to be that open door. Yeah, what I found, I've dealt with this with the young people in our church and, and friends as well. One of the most powerful things is taking time to sit with people, but also share with them the stories of, of your own, you know, working through your own doubts sharing with them why you believe uh, the things that you believe, yeah. helping them. Maybe you say, I don't know the answer, but I'm not just going to tell you to go look it up. I'm going to go through that process with you. Let's research it together. And joining them on that journey yeah. is so helpful and important of saying, let's go find these answers together. And if you don't know where to get those answers, the great thing is there's a ton of resources. Yeah. And, and we'd love to put you in touch with some of those as well. 100%. Another thing is seek to understand the cultural influences that young Christians and really all Christians are facing. I regularly subscribe and watch to YouTube channels that come from people that are in this like negative, atheist, deconstructive, critical space. Not because like I'm a glutton for punishment, not because I'm attracted to it. It's because I want to understand like, what are they hearing? I know what they're hearing from me, but what are they hearing the the whole rest of the week when they're not, like we only have them for one hour a week, sometimes two, if you're a church that has two services, they're hearing so much stuff from outside forces. I love the screw tape letters because it's this, you know, parable where C.S. Lewis is painting, like, here's what the strategy of the enemy is. Here's how the demons fight dirty. I think it's so important for us to study the cultural influences so we can know the military strategy of the enemy. And so we can understand how we can bring the truth where there is darkness. Yeah, another approach that we took was that we did a series in our church. We did two years in a row because it was so incredibly popular. And what we did is that we put out an anonymous poll, asked everyone in the church to share it with everyone they knew. Yeah. And we asked two questions. One was, do you consider yourself a Christian? The second one was, you know, what are, would you say are the biggest barriers to you truly embracing Jesus and the gospel and Christianity? Yeah. And we gave a few examples of things that we assumed would be barriers for people. And then we also gave a space where they could write in answers. Here's what we got. We got several hundred responses. And 
What we found, about 50% of those came from people who said, I am a Christian, but here are the very real doubts and struggles I'm having. The others would say, I'm not a Christian, and here's why. And what it did for us, it gave us an understanding of how people in our community and extended community, what they're really dealing with and struggling with, but also gave us an opportunity to invite them to let us respond to those things. And hopefully we would give something compelling. And so what we did with that, I mean, that was um, one of these things where people started bringing friends and inviting people and saying, you know, we gave a schedule ahead of time. Here are the eight, nine weeks that we're doing this. Here's a topic we'll be covering on this week. And of course, people are like, hey, you know, they've got somebody and they say, you, you got to hear this. They're going to respond to this. Maybe you'll like the answer. Maybe you won't. But they came and gave us a hearing. From that, we turned that into a book. We put together nine responses to the, the top nine questions that we got in doing this. And we created this as a resource for our church and for the body of Christ to say, here are some good arguments are good responses. I even prefer to use that over arguments hmm. rather than, you know, calling them hurdles because a hurdle is something you have to get over, right? We're not telling people to get over these things. We want to help you navigate these things and work through them and wrestle with these questions. And so that's one way that we approach it. I think it's a helpful way for churches to do that. You can do it as an apologetic series, but understand yeah. half the people in your church are, even though they're there, they're struggling with real questions. That's important to understand that. Yeah, it's really good. Here's a few more. One, be intellectually honest. So what I mean by that is if the house is on fire, like be honest about it. I've talked to so many young people where they feel like when they express their frustrations with the church, they get a lot of defensiveness from other Christians, which is like so funny to me because Growing up, like we never had any problem, like just in my context, like kind of saying, oh, these, that denomination there, they're doing it wrong. These guys are doing it wrong. When it's us critiquing ourselves, we're, we're able to do it. When, when someone from the outside is being negative, we can get all like, oh, that's the bride of Christ. Stop talking negative about it. I just sense that when we can say, hey, that's that, that thing that, that happened, that abuse in that church, that's not the way that Jesus intended it to be. That that corruption that you saw, that hypocrisy, that's actually not the way Jesus designed the church. And I'm so sorry that Christians failed you, but I'm also here to tell you that Jesus is the ultimate example. And I'm, I'm a flawed leader, absolutely, but I'm trying to follow him. And I wanna invite you not to look at me as the standard, because if you look at me as the standard, I'm gonna fail you every time. But will you join me on a humble journey of following Jesus together. That's what I want to invite people into. Yeah, we never want to sweep church hurt under the rug, and we never want to dismiss the wrong actions of people within our own tribe, right? Because we want to acknowledge hypocrisy when it happens. Uh, We want to deal with those things in the right way. Having integrity matters a lot in this. 100%. Another thing would be help people understand that God can handle their doubts and doubting does not equal leaving the faith. I remember talking to a young girl and she was, you know, she's like 18 years old, homeschooler, just super sheltered her whole life. And now she's going to college and she's learning about evolution. And she's telling me like, I'm pretty convinced about this evolution thing. And then she starts crying and I'm like, what's wrong? And she's like, my parents told me that I can't be a Christian. I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, and I even believe in theistic evolution. Like, I believe God was the one who created this. And my parents are just telling me like, yeah, if you believe in any form of evolution, you're basically as bad as an atheist and you're an apostate and you've left the faith. This is like real stuff that happens. 
And it's because the, the parents got bad theology from somebody and they tragically passed it down to somebody else. It's this vicious cycle. And I think just helping people understand, like for me, like I don't believe in evolution, but I'm not going to tell somebody that they're excluded from the faith because of some secondary or third tier issue. I want people to understand the tent is much wider. And I think if we could be a little bit more flexible, that doesn't mean compromise on like what we believe. Tell people what you believe. Be, be sincere about what you believe, but also let people know, hey, just because you don't hold to, you know, premillennial dispensationalism, that doesn't mean that you're outside of our family of believers, right? Yeah. So I just say, you know, it's very hard to influence someone who you don't like and who can tell that you don't like them. And it's a fact, you know, it's very hard to influence people with truth if you don't have love for them and they will always be able to tell whether you have love for them or not. And so I just encourage you to keep that in mind. We, we want to have love and truth at the same time. Absolutely. And just to close, I think we need to recognize the dangers of love without truth. That's my temptation. I lean towards grace. What God has shown me over the years is if I have a friend and he wants to drink a bottle of poison and I'm just like, yeah, man, I support you. I love you, bro. You do you. That is not helpful for him. That leads to death. And so when I'm dealing with a young person that's doubting, deconstructing, pulling apart their faith, I want to bend over backwards to show them I love you. I care for you. I'm not going to reject you because of your doubts. I'm not going to push you away. I'm not going to be mean to you because, you know, you're being mean to the church, right? You've been hurt. I want to recognize your hurt. I want to affirm like that was a bad thing that happened. That's heartbreaking. But then I don't want to be so full of empathy that I don't point them to the truth. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And I, what I've experienced is if you bend over backwards to show someone that you care, they're going to be so much more open to hearing that word of encouragement that points to repentance. And they might not accept it right at that moment, but I've had times where like, I, I remember getting a call from a kid in my youth group and I tried to give him a correction when he was like in seventh grade and he just did not receive it. And then he left the youth group and moved to another state. And he called me when he was like 21 and he's like, Aaron. Yeah, he's like, he's like Aaron, I'm lying in a pile of my own puke and alcohol and that thing you said to me in second grade finally hit my brain and the spirit, like the Holy Spirit, like, please help me. Like, how do I repent? And I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to encourage you guys, take every opportunity to encourage, to speak into these moments with people because you don't know when that seed is going to blossom. Like, you don't know what God can do. I think we need to wrap up here. So Aaron, uh, I'm going to pray. Sounds good. So man. Lord, we ask that you would help us to help those who you'd want us to reach. Help us to have the compassionate heart that you have for them. Help us also, Lord, to come with substantial answers because we believe that the truth is there and it's in your word. And we just ask, Lord, equip us, use us, and Lord, bring people to us who are struggling with these things so that we can have these conversations with them for your glory and for their sake. Can we pray this in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. In upcoming episodes, I will be interviewing author Corey Piper. Also, I'll be interviewing author Lucy S.R. Austin, who recently wrote a biography of Elizabeth Elliot for Crossway Publishing. 
I'm also planning some episodes soon analyzing the different views on Revelation, so stay tuned for that. If there's ever a topic you'd like to learn more about, there's a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics. That can be found at nickkady.org. That's N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y.org. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. And if this episode was helpful, I would appreciate it if you would share it with others or leave a written review on either the Apple podcast app or on Spotify. That really helps boost the show and helps other people discover it as well. Thanks for listening. And until next time, God bless you.